You may have detected a bit of a theme going on in our service today. We're talking about some of the attributes of God, some of the names of God. And um, today our reading is from Psalm 91, which is a psalm of protection, but it, it brings up some of the interesting names of God. One in particular is God known as El Shaddai, which is one way to translate that name of God is the God who protects or the God who is almighty and powerful. But to introduce our time, before I go to the reading, I want to talk about uh, how God has many names in the Bible. You may have noticed this as you've been reading through the Bible. Uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek. And each language has names for God, but there's far more names for God in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and I'm going to highlight just a few of them just as a reference for you, but also because the richness of the variety of names for God describes the richness of God's attributes. There's different attributes of God, and the Old Testament writers use different names for God at different times, and, and it's when they're appealing to the different aspects of God's nature. In the Old Testament, probably the, one of the the most rudimentary names for God is just El. E-L is, is a simple syllable. And that is the God of dynamic power. But that name gets a few um, sort of trailers on it. And it's quite, quite common in the Old Testament that they just keep adding on names for God in one uh, sort of one setting. So sometimes God has three of his names all strung together. Uh, and that becomes an interesting challenge for the translators of the Bible because do they create a whole new name of God or do they say God and then follow it with some of those adjectives which are attributes of him. But God, El is the original Old Testament name for God and it was used in the region of Canaan that the, the people of God settled with, uh, settled with Abraham and then later as they came back from Egypt um, Another name in the Old Testament which is related to, to it somewhat is Elohim. That name for God itself is actually plural. When you have a Hebrew word with an I-M at the, at the end, it's a plural. So Elohim is actually the plural of the God, name of God, which is Eloah. And that, um, that word is, since it's plural, it could mean that this is the God of the hosts or that this is the triune God, even though... In the Old Testament, they didn't understand that God was three persons, but yet they had this plural name for God, which is interesting. But also that pluralization could express the intensity of God, that God is really is, is so huge that we have to refer to him as, as many. God, even though they were very clear that even though Elohim was plural, yet we were only talking about one God. And that was always the, the center of Old Testament faith is that there is only one God, and this is what differentiated them from all the people that they were around, because all the other people, the Egyptians and the Canaanite and the Babylonians, all of them had a pantheon of gods, hundreds of gods, sometimes thousands of gods. But Elohim is this intense and extensive and glorious God who has preeminence and power. But Elohim also has this component in his name that implies faithfulness in his covenant. And so when the Old Testament writers are talking about God keeping covenant with his people, they often use the name Elohim for, that, for God in that sense. There's other, as I said, there's a few other uh, names for God that descend from this base name El. 
El Elyon, which is God the exalted, the maker, the possessor, the ruler of all people. El Shaddai, which we're going to look at a little bit today in Psalm 91, is God as the all-powerful and all-sufficient God who is sovereign and thus is able to protect his people. Psalm 91 is a psalm of protection. So El Shaddai is a beautiful name for God. One that we don't hear often is El Olam, O-L-A-M, Olam, El Olam, is the God as the everlasting or the eternal God, the God who has always been and will always be. Um, And then a very unusual and unique, there's only one example of this in the Old Testament, that in one place in the Old Testament, in Genesis uh, 16, God is called El Roy, R-O-I, El Roy. And that's actually a name given to God by a woman named Hagar, who was Sarah's handmaiden or slave girl from Egypt. This is a really radical naming of God because normally it's the powerful people who create the names for God. But here's a person with no power at all who is allowed, permitted by God to name him. And God accepts this naming of him. Hagar names God El Roy, and that name means the God who sees because God sees Hagar's plight in the wilderness when she's about to die and she's taking her son Ishmael away from Abraham's camp. God sees her distress and he provides for her. So the name of God also permits the weak to name God. Very interesting. Can you tell I'm animated about that? I think that's it's just a fascinating aspect of God's name is that, is that he allows a weak person to name him. Just as a side note, you can tell I'm excited. In the old, in the old world, to name something is to have dominion over it. That's why when God gave Adam the task of naming the animals, that was part and parcel of Adam's dominion and sovereignty over the created order as appointed by God. So that God allowing someone of his creatures to name him is very radical in a way. But in a way, it prefigures that God then enters the world in weakness and allows himself um, to, to live among his people. And we see that in the incarnation with Jesus. Now I'm going to get to the name that you probably see the most in the Bible. In fact, you do see it the most in the Bible. And this is the name that God gives to Moses at the burning bush. It is Yahweh. It's a four-letter name for God. We spell it in our language W-A-H-W-E-H. Yah, you could say Yahweh. If you want to sound like you're from the Middle East, you would say Yahweh, like you're clearing your throat. Um, Actually, we don't know how to pronounce this. We really don't know how it's pronounced. We know how it's spelled, but we don't know how it's pronounced. One thing we do know about how it's pronounced is it is not pronounced Jehovah. As wonderful as that word is, that is an incorrect pronunciation of that word. We know that much. But if you want to say Jehovah, it's okay. It's the same word. In the Bible, you'll find that when you have the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all capital letters, you ever seen that in your Bible, that's an indication that, that the Hebrew word underneath that is Yahweh. And that's a signal. Other times where it appears as God, it could be Elohim or some other name for God. But this appears 6,832 times in the Old Testament, far more than Elohim, which shows up only about 2,000 times. But both are very common names for God. What does Yahweh mean? Well, God tells Moses what Yahweh means. It means, I am, 
I am who I am, or I will be whom I will be, um, or I will cause to be what will come to be. So it really speaks about God's power over time. It speaks about God's identity. It speaks about God being the only God, the only God who really exists, whose essence is, is anchored in his actual existence. And so now we have just a few uh, other, other names for God that kind of trail off of Yahweh. One is Yahweh Sabaoth, which means hosts. So that's the Lord of hosts. So have you ever seen the Lord of hosts in the Bible? That's where we get that name. Yahweh Nisi is my banner. These are sometimes uh, words that are used for God as God is my banner. Yahweh Rapha is the healer. Yahweh Rohi is the shepherd. Yahweh Jireh or Jireh is the provider. Now we sometimes have this song called Jehovah Jireh, my provider, although that's the incorrect pronunciation of Yahweh. So you could say Yahweh Jireh or Yahweh Jireh. That's God the provider. Yahweh Shalom is the God of peace. And then finally, another term that people used for God is Adonai in the Old Testament. And, and that's often what they would do is they would use the word Adonai when they saw Yahweh because they didn't want to pronounce God's name. And so they would say Adonai instead. There was such holiness around God's name that they wouldn't pronounce it when it was written as Yahweh. And so, but we don't, we don't believe that it's wrong to pronounce it, but the people back then did think it was wrong. Even it was so holy that you shouldn't utter it. When a scribe was copying the name of God, and, and the scribes would be copying the Old Testament down from one book to another, there were certain rules for what the scribes should do when they came across the scriptures all 6,800 6, times that Yahweh's name showed up, is that if they were about to write that name, they had to do three things. One was make sure that um, their pen was sharp, and it was usually a feather, so they'd make sure it was nice and sharp so that they wouldn't blur the writing of God's name because it was so holy. The other was to make sure that they had enough ink in their feather so that they didn't run out of ink while they were writing God's name and have to go back because writing God's name should be one continuous action for them so they don't blemish it on the paper. or on Actually, it wasn't paper. It was, it was the skin of a sheep is that what they wrote a lot of these things on, and then they'd roll it all up. And the final was that the scribe, when he was writing God's name, it was so holy that even if the king were to tap him on the shoulder while he's writing, he would have to ignore the king and finish writing God's name so that it didn't trail off the page into some other place and thus bring dishonor to God's name. It's very fascinating, very interesting. So there is a lot about God's name. There's a lot um, that we can find out. And um, they had so many names for God. Today I want us to look a little bit um, at God's name as El Shaddai, the God of protection, God of protection. Last week I spoke a little bit uh, about um, what do we do at times when we don't feel safe. Uh, and so this week I want to follow that up with a psalm that's about God's protection and that is about God's promise of protection to us. So with that, I'd like to go to the reading, Psalm 91. And it's the entire psalm. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, 
my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I want to speak a little bit about this psalm of protection, but I want to speak about protection more generally in the Bible and actually make this a meditation on how Scripture speaks about God as our protector, one who keeps us safe. And there's some nuance to this that we're actually going to get into because you may be wondering to yourself, well, God promises to keep us safe, then why aren't we always safe? It's a very good question, right? We'll, We'll get into that. Uh, And I'm going to be actually reading extensively from Scripture. And if you want to follow along, I have made ten copies of the Scriptures that I'm going to read. They're back there on the very last, if anyone wants to follow on. But Zach will be helping out, and so they'll all be up here too. So you could take those home with you at the end if you like. But I want to just start off by uh, looking at some passages where God promises to protect his people. And the first one is from 2 Kings chapter 6 where it says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha, this is a story about Elisha, prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And Elisha's servants looked and saw that the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And this is this beautiful story in the Old Testament about how there were these angelic sort of protectors all around them. The God is protecting Elisha and his servant. Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Isaiah 19. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender, and he will rescue them. Beautiful words. Isaiah 51. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I, who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people. Now you may be thinking, we'll skip ahead to Matthew, um, Matthew 16. Even the New Testament speaks about this. It's not just the Old Testament. The New Testament speaks about God as a protector. 
Peter, uh, Jesus speaking to Peter in Matthew 16, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. John, John, verse, uh, John chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then finally, 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul speaking personally about God's protection for him, where he says this, Nobody came to my support, verse 17, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So God has a general sense of protection um, for his people. Now, I want you to know I'm reading these verses, and there's all, of course, verses before these and after these that we should be paying attention to. And so I invite, I invite you to take the list home and read those too. And I'm not trying to build an entire theology about God's protection out of this, but I wanna, I'm just pointing out that the Scripture speaks often about God as a protector, either as a prayer asking for protection or because they've experienced God as a protector, and to them that's a safe feeling, a good thing. If we look at Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10, we see that God does protect people, but that God has a special emphasis on protecting the, the vulnerable people of this world, the ones who can't protect themselves. God has a special burden for those people. So this is what Deuteronomy 10 says, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. I like that. God doesn't accept bribes, as if we could have anything that we could bribe him with. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, that is, the stranger in the land, giving him food and clothing. God has a special care for those who don't have the ability to care for themselves. Psalm 68 God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God is in his holy dwelling. Psalm 146, The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Now, that doesn't always happen, does it? I mean, we have to be honest, right? We think of God punishing the wicked, and he will. Sometimes you just have to wait a while for it, and um, sometimes you won't see it in your lifetime. That was a question that came up uh, in a group that was looking at the sermon from last week, is this sense that um, why is it that the wicked prosper? Why is it that they enjoy, even they enjoy God's protection? Well, uh, it's, not for us to, it's not for us to decide when they get punished. God is sovereign over those things, and we don't always understand it. Psalm 32 and following, we're going to see that we're going to start developing some of the imagery that, that especially the psalm writers, but others too, had for God and in this sense of protection. The first is that God is like a hiding place. You are my, we even have a song, You Are My Hiding Place. Uh, psalm 32, is, it's based on that psalm. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Psalm 17, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And you have this imagery of God as a giant bird 
that protects its young under its wings. And if you've ever seen birds do that to their young, it's a beautiful image. And so there's some organic image from, uh, imagery from nature that God is this protecting presence. Psalm 27. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Psalm 31. In the shelter of your presence you will hide them from the intrigues of men. In your dwelling you keep them safe from accusing tongues. So God is a hiding place. Now from Psalm 57 on, we'll see God as a refuge, a place of safety, a, a place of rest. Psalm 57, I, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. And here we see that God is called a refuge, and you're starting to see the psalmist combine imagery about God. So we have God as a refuge, but also God as this protector. And as we see, it's just like a snowball going down a hill. Eventually, we're going to get some psalms that start adding, adding together all these attributes of God into these beautiful uh, poems. Deuteronomy 33, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out your enemy before you, saying, Destroy him. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help, uh, ever help in trouble. Psalm 46 is one of my favorite psalms. It's beautiful in so many ways. Proverbs 18. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. The sense that the name of God is a refuge, a safe place. Nahum 1.7. The Lord is, God, is good, a refuge in times of trouble. Now from, uh, we'll look at Genesis 15, and this is beautiful language of God. It's military language. We see God is compared to a shield. You imagine a soldier in battle using that shield to, to defend himself. Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your Shield, your very great reward. Psalm 119, you are my refuge and my shield. We're beginning to combine some ideas again. I have put my hope in your word. Proverbs 30, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Now we're going to start like combining like crazy. Are you ready to start combining these things like, like crazy? 2 Samuel 22 David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. There's three things right there. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent men you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. David just pours it on there, doesn't he? Just let's get all that out there. Psalm 71. Be my rock of, refu of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. And now, Psalm 91 is the one we're looking at today. Psalm 91, and I'll read part of it again, just the beginning. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Now that Almighty at the end of verse 1 is the El Shaddai, 
that name of God that is the God of protection, the God of power who will protect. So here we're getting some imagery of, of, the, uh, of God. In verse 2, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers. Again, that imagery of the wings. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. So as you can see there, we got about six of the images of God's protection all piled into the first four verses of Psalm 91. Isaiah 25. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall. God does protect his people. We find in the scriptures this sense that God's protection is actualized or made more real for those people who trust in him. You can trust in the wrong things and you won't be as protected is one way of looking at it. So we look at Isaiah 31. It says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in their great strength of their horsemen. But do not look upon the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. It would make more sense to seek the help of the Lord, to trust the Lord. Psalm 20. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. So again, we have this sense that protection from God is for everybody, but if you put your trust in something else like chariots or horses or your 401k or uh, something else like that or your own ability, it's not the same as trusting in the Lord. Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. Psalm 125 is actually, I want to point here, um, here's the word Jerusalem. If you look in the Hebrew text, that's actually a, a word poem that's visual because you have the word Jerusalem right dead center in those two verses. And you have this sense that the, all the words are surrounding Jerusalem, just like the Lord surrounds Jerusalem to protect it. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. And then Daniel chapter 3, this is famous, uh, of people who trust God, even in the face of possible death. Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And we know how that story ends, that God did protect those three. I'd like to give us a few examples of prayers that people in the Bible have prayed asking for God's protection. Psalm 25. 
Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Psalm 35. Awake and rise to my defense. Contend for me, my God and Lord. Psalm 74. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Psalm 86. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Now maybe we can get to the point where we think about this question. We ask God for protection. We trust that God protects his people. We trust that God protects those who can't protect themselves. We trust that God protects Jerusalem. We trust that God protects his people. But even last week, we saw in this psalm of lament, Psalm 79, that God did permit Jerusalem to fall because of their idolatry. God does permit terrible things to happen to his people. So what do we do with that? We want to maybe talk about protection in in two different ways. There are really no guarantees in this life that you will always be safe, that bad things won't happen to you. My children fall and they trip and they skin their knees and there's not an angel, even though the psalm says so, there's not an angel that watches their feet and keeps them from falling down. It just, it doesn't happen. I think we all know this. And on a much grander scale, we pray and we pray and God doesn't protect us from cancer all the time. God doesn't protect us from heart attacks all the time. God doesn't protect us from automobile accidents, even when we're doing something for somebody else. It doesn't happen all the time. It might happen far more than we realize it. We just don't know when it's happening. That'd be nice to know. That'd be nice to think. So there's not this 100% guarantee of safety in this life. There isn't. Life is dangerous. The world is a fallen place. It's broken. Other people are out in this world doing things that we don't have control over. And God is not in the business of controlling their every move and action to keep us safe. It's just a reality. So how do we live day to day in such a dangerous world, in a place where things could happen to us and happen to our family? I've thought about this a lot last, this last week, just thinking about um, you can lament that terrible things could possibly happen to you and you could never really live. But I think about Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. He was marching to Jerusalem for weeks on end, and he was telling people, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to save the world up there. And I could very easily see somebody saying that, I'm marching to my death. I have to do this. Completely shutting down on the way there. I've got to get through this. I've got this one task. I'm not going to make any new friends because I'm going to die. I'm not going to have a chance. I'm not going to go to this house and sit at this banquet. I'm not going to go to this feast. I'm not going to engage with this person because I'm going to my death. Jesus doesn't do that. As he's walking to his death weeks away, he lives his life to the fullest. In every possible way, he continues to teach, he continues to heal, he continues to eat in the houses of sinners. He continues to have relationships with his disciples. 
He lives life to the fullest even until the end because the life that he had was a gift. And it was such a gift that he was, it really meant something for him to give it up so that on the other side we would have the hope of new life and resurrection. And so even for us, we know danger does lurk out there in this world. We've done a lot of things with technology to keep our world as safe as possible. This afternoon, my family's going to get on an airplane and fly to Hawaii. And it's a 737. I didn't know they flew 737s to Hawaii, but they do. So, all right. Um, I trust that this airplane will get us there just fine. Um, I'm sure... You're all going to drive home this afternoon, and actually that's far more risky than getting on an airplane, evidently. But it's still pretty safe. Most of your cars have airbags and anti-lock brakes. But you can't engineer all of that risk out of life. You can't. And so you have two choices. One is to hide your life in every possible way and never really live because of the risk out there. The other is to say, the life that I have, I have until I don't have it anymore, and I don't know when that is. I'll be careful where it makes sense to be careful, but the rest of the time, I'm just going to live. I'm going to live and go out there and be God's person in this world and, and have him guide me as I have interactions with other people. So God may protect us. He may not physically in this world. But I want to talk about, that's that one side of it. But the other side, I think I want us to be really clear about this. In terms of our eternal salvation, in terms of our relationship with God, in terms of God claiming us as his own and writing our name in the book of life and saying there's a place at the table for you at the heavenly banquet, that is something you will not lose unless you choose to lose it, unless you get up, unless you come up here right now and say, I renounce it all. <laughs> Please don't do that. There's a few laughter. Don't do that. Um, you will not lose this. God will protect you spiritually. And there's spiritual danger out there too. And we can be confident that God will protect us in that. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Where, where Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in that last time. Isn't it interesting how in the New Testament there's these echoes of these Old Testament concepts of God's protection? The shield, this place of safety. Peter is writing that. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus speaking to his disciples. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. John chapter 10. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And it's the same passage we had before. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand hands. Your, your connection to the Father cannot be affected by the evil one or anyone else. 
cannot be taken away. I want to end with a slightly longer passage. Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39. And I'll let this just simply be sort of the punctuation on, on this teaching about God's protection. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, El Shaddai, our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, our shield, hide us in the shadow of your wings. Protect us in this life, but let us live in this life. And we thank you that you protect our souls in the next. Amen.